Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our uh, call to confession is found in Acts chapter 3 verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The necessity of repentance uh, should probably be burned on our foreheads for us that desire that our sins be erased, blotted out, forgotten, that we may share in this refreshing that the verse talks about. When sinners are convic- convinced, convicted of their sins, they cry out to the Lord for pardon. Remorseful, converted, a believing soul, then times of refreshment will come. And now, if you would, turn your Bibles to. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Please bow briefly to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bless us this morning as we consider your inspired word and what it means for our lives. We thank you for it and thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, 
but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with, with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. The sermon theme this morning uh, is based on a, uh, a somewhat familiar, somewhat famous quote from Martin Luther from uh, a little over 500 years ago. And the theme of this entire message is going to be that Luther's paradox helps us to understand both what we believe and then how we are to live. So today we will explore that uh, together. So first, where does this phrase come from? This simul justus et peccator. Where does this come from? Well, Luther coined this phrase in his first, in his commentary on the book of Romans. We've spent a fair amount of time in, in Romans this morning. And this was two years before he famously uh, nailed the 99 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg in, in October 1517. We're going to be celebrating Reformation Sunday coming up soon. And one interesting note from Luther's commentary on Romans is that this is his view of Romans. If you just put into a sentence, if you ask Martin, how important do you think Romans is? Here's his response. It is impossible to read or meditate on this letter too much or too well. Can't possibly spend too much time in the book. So what does this phrase mean? Well, the English translation of simul justus et peccator is at the same time, simul, simultaneous, righteous, that's justus, think justice, righteous, and sinner, peccator. At the same time, we are righteous and sinner. This phrase comes to the, in the form, if you go back to your English uh, classes from high school, if you've been through high school, some of you haven't yet, this comes to us in the form of a paradox. And a paradox is a statement that appears to be contradictory, but in fact is not. So this is a paradox. The reason we're considering this paradox today is, is that in addition to being an important thread through all of Luther's writing, and some have said is even the heart of the gospel, I believe, and I submit to you today, this is a theological key that we can use to unlock both several common misunderstandings about theology and about how we are to live. So I think this has a lot of potential for helping us in our Christian life, for what we think and what we do. As an aside, I think it's absolutely brilliant that Luther was able to capture this key Reformation truth in a single memorable phrase. And, and throughout uh, our time today, I'll be referring it to as simul. So I won't always say simul justus et peccator. I might just say simul. So but with these 
few words, he turned up the contrast on the Bible's teaching on sin and righteousness of the believer and what we know today as justification. So in one sense, as we unpack this paradox, we are sinners. Let's first consider that. And I know that you're familiar with, many of you are familiar with this, this truth. But you've also heard walking on the street, talking to friends and family, man is basically good. You've heard the proposition that man is basically good. Well, the symbol says, no, we're not. Because it says that we are sinners. So this truth, in addition to original sin, refers to our actual sin. And we sin continually, which is the reason that you see the confession of sin built into our liturgy each week. This truth is found throughout the Bible, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 7, that we just read before the Romans 8. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. It's very clear that we continue to sin. And we can't forget John's testimony in his, in his first letter, 1 John 1. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So now let's pivot to, to the righteous part, the Eustace part. Likewise, there are many passages of Scripture that teach that we are righteous. In Romans 4, that we saw earlier today, which is a quote of Genesis 15, our first passage for the day, for what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was called righteous. And in the previous chapter, in Romans 3, we read in 21 and 22, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through, Christ, in, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see the connection between belief and righteousness. I think the most important question that we can address today, I'm going to address first. And that is, will I be judged in order to get to heaven by my actual righteousness, by what I actually do, or by the righteousness of Christ? Those are the two options. Whose account do I want representing me when I am judged in terms of whether I'll be in heaven or not? And the biblical answer to that question is that for the Christian, he or she is reconciled to God and justified not based on what we do, a works righteousness, but on what Christ has accomplished for us. Theologians call this imputation. So, and that really means uh, it's a technical term that means charging or assigning guilt. So my sin, past, present, or future, and future, is imputed to Christ or charged to his account. His righteousness is imputed to me or charged to my account. So when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So from God's perspective, my sin goes to Jesus, his righteousness comes to me, and therefore, God sees me as righteous. And in this way, even though I'm a sinner, and here's the important part, we are declared to be righteous. We have been declared righteous. We aren't actually righteous. We're actually a sinner, but declared righteous. 
So Christians, you are at the same time righteous and sinner. So now let's continue into Romans 8. And with, that, with that preface of Simmel behind us, let's turn our attention to Romans 8. And the third scripture reading from today in Romans 7 provides the immediate context from what comes next. You know that in the original letter that Paul penned to the church at Rome, we didn't have chapter markings. This was a letter. So at the end of chapter 7, what do we see? We see that sin indwells me. Paul is dwelling on the fact that he is a sinner, that he practices the very sin he doesn't wish to practice. And he, he concludes that wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? And then, as though the sun came out, there's a clear description of how persistent after this persistent, potent sin in our life, he writes these 13 words, 13 in the ancient translation that I'm, I'm quoting from the New American Standard. Um, these 13 words with great triumph, with maybe the, the peak, the pinnacle of the, of the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This amazing grace headline, it's the headline. He didn't bury the headline. He, he didn't bury the lead. This is the headline. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One theologian has said that no condemnation is exactly the same meaning as justification. No condemnation sticks in my mind, but those two mean the same things. That means you're justified. The assurance of salvation, one of the big takeaways we're going to spend a bit of time on, is that the assurance that you are saved is something that you can have as a present possession today. There is therefore now no condemnation. Immediately. It is something that we don't have to wonder about that might come in the future if everything lines up correctly we can have the present assurance of being in heaven when we pass from this life. Then in verses 2 through 4, he goes on to explain how all of this works. He unpacks it. He leads with the big message, the big idea, and then starts to explain what's behind all of this. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here, in, just in verses 2 and 3, we learn that it is, one, not possible to earn your way to heaven because the law is weak. That's, that's what that means. You can't adhere to the law and go to heaven as a result. You can't be good enough to go to heaven. If that's what you're counting on, that is a false hope. Secondly, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is our substitute. Imputation is actually implied here in verse 3. And that thirdly, Christ completely crushed the penalty of sin. That his sacrifice was not to eliminate sin from our life, but to crush the penalty of sin. Sin remains, but we will not be penalized for it in eternity. 
And then he concludes in verse 4 in this section that in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God, in so doing, doesn't set aside his righteous standard. He doesn't grade on a curve, as it were, uh, as as some of you teachers or students have, have been experiencing. The requirement of the law is completely 100% fulfilled in Christ's righteousness. Now in this next section, as we move to flesh and spirit, Paul further explains those who have faith and those who do not have faith. What, what is it that characterizes those of faith and those without faith? For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. So here we see that our identity, that is, Are we of the flesh? Do we walk according to the flesh or according to the spirit? Determines our focus. Our identity determines our focus. Another way that Luke put it, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I'm absolutely struck by how Paul describes this as a complete binary. It is this or this. These two mutually exclusive categories, flesh and and spirit. And then when he gets to verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God, leads me to a moment of application as well. Here's a question that you might have encountered in your Christian life. Maybe you have the answer to this as well. But if someone is doing, if someone is a good person, think of someone who's a good person, but is not a Christian, Do their good things please God? We see in in Romans 8.8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Even though a person might be doing a good thing by helping the little old lady across the street and by helping a neighbor, those things are not good in God's eyes because their whole life, all of their actions are hostile toward God. Very clear terminology here. We move on to verses 9 to 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So in the spirit simply means that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Christians are indwelled by the Holy Spirit at the moment of their belief, at the moment of their faith and regeneration. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. And that's further reinforced later in the chapter in in verse 14. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit here is throughout our lives. It's active throughout our earthly lives and even, 
according to verse 11, in the resurrection. So the ministry of the Spirit of God is active in our, in our lives through, uh, throughout our earthly life. And then we turn our attention to the Christian life. Verses 12 to 15. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here, this portion of text reminded me immediately of Francis Schaeffer's title, How Should We Then Live? We have an obligation. Our obligation as those people of faith is to live according to the Spirit. And then Paul sets the expectation. He says, first, you have an obligation. Now he sets the expectation that the Christian life should be characterized by what I'm summarizing here and what theologians summarize as progressive sanctification, where each believer is active in, quote, putting to death the deeds of the body. If it's not already a part of your prayer vocabulary, I would encourage you to include that phrase. It's colorful. It brings to mind a, a, a very important picture that we are putting to death the deeds of the body. Also, there are two extreme views that are floating out there in various denominations that are, in a, in a different sense, put to death by this, by this passage. First, the notion of a carnal Christian. It's possible for someone to be a Christian and yet live as though there has been no change in their life. This passage of scripture absolutely denounces that. That's wrong. It is not possible. You can tell a Christian by their fruit, and their fruit is the working out of that obligation and becoming more sanctified. And then secondly, the other rut in the road, you know, if, if there are two different directions that you can go with this error, the carnal Christian might be one. One other rut in the road might be that of sinless perfection. In the 19th century, now all through the 20th century, there's a thread of the Christian church that believes that you can achieve sinless perfection. Last time I sinned was October 25th, you know, 1975, and I haven't sinned since. And you'll hear that kind of thing from people. That, again, doesn't square with this testimony of Scripture. This testimony of Scripture is that it, we are always to be about putting to death the deeds of the body. We are in a continual fight with the blessing of the Spirit to do exactly that. As we move on in this passage, 14 to 17, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For, if you, for you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. Adoption is an absolutely precious truth. The Apostle John is the first in the sequence of the writing of the New Testament to introduce adoption to us in the first 12 verses of his gospel. He writes, But as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. What an amazing thing that we are called children of God. So as we bring these things into, into closure, the simul, Romans 8, uh, why does this matter to us today? And, and we've talked about a few different areas of application. There are a few more that I'd like to put before you today. One is hermeneutics, the science of interpreting what the Bible says. This understanding that we are both sinner and righteous will be very helpful as you read the Bible and as you understand which aspect, which perspective is being shown to us in this passage. I showed you before that in the very same book of Romans, we see Romans 3 and Romans 7 emphasizing the fact that we're sinners, and yet Romans 4 and Romans 8 are emphasizing the fact that we are righteous, all in the same book. It's a wonderful hermeneutic tool or key to understand. It's a question you might want to ask yourself. Here does this passage refer to the Christian as sinner or the Christian as righteous before God? Secondly, and I've touched on this before, I'll spend a little bit more time on assurance. Those who come to saving faith can and should have a present assurance of salvation. Salvation is not a possibility. It's not a likelihood. It's not a prospect. It's not a hope. It is an absolute certainty. Remember, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Several denominations teach that you may get to heaven after an extended layover in purgatory. For those of you who do air travel, you know what layovers are. If you're obedient, that is, you're faithful to do all the things that the church tells you to do, that really is one entire group of Christendom believes that. They have no present assurance of salvation. They have a present assurance of punishment, and the question mark is, how long will that terrible layover be? The clear teaching of the Bible is that we are to have assurance. In Acts 10.43, we read, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are guiltless. There's no reference to, to purgatory. There's no reference to you might go to heaven. It's about being there. It's having the assurance. 1 Corinthians 7, or 1 Corinthians 1 rather, echoes the same thing that we are to be, that we can count ourselves blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And while it is true that the Christian will sin, 1 John 2.16 describes our continued temptation to sin using these following categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. But nothing, not even these sins, can separate us from the love of God, as we're going to see later in Romans 8. And Spurgeon put it this way, I believe that as often as I transgress, God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to offend. And, and believe me, Spurgeon understood he was ready to offend God at all times. The third application that I'll, I'll go into here a bit is 
the difference between and getting right justification versus sanctification. It's very important to keep a clear picture for what each of those things do and mean. And I, there is no better uh, reference that I can give you than the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession does an outstanding job at summarizing in just a few words, powerful words, what justification is and sanctification is. That will help you when you're talking to people or, or if you struggle yourself with the notion that it's possible to lose your salvation. Is it possible to lose your salvation? Well, when Christ's righteousness is imputed to you and your sin is imputed to Christ, you were declared righteous. That status will not change. And as Wesley wrote to him, we just sang, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Those who believe you can lose your salvation really don't understand salvation and justification biblically, I would submit to you. They don't understand simul. They don't understand Romans 8.1. When Christ's righteousness was imputed to you and your sin was imputed to Christ, you were declared righteous. That status isn't going to change. Then we move to, to sanctification. And the first part of a confession is so clear on this that I've, I'm even going to share it with you just exactly as I read it. The Westminster Confession on Sanctification reads, They who were once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. How? By his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, put to death mortification of sin, put to death the sin of the body. And they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So I, I can't say it better than that. So this week, as you, as you consider simul, as you consider that you are both righteous and a sinner, there are going to be a number of different dimensions of this that we haven't considered this morning. But in your family devotions and your conversations over meals today or, or later in the week, ask one another about topics that might be, might be impacted by simul. So here are five examples. You will come up with more. Come up with a long list. But here are five examples. One, guilt. If your sins have been truly forgiven, must you continue to be weighed down with the burden of guilt over past sin? Is it limiting your service for God? Is it somehow influencing you in a way that it shouldn't? Consider the impact of guilt in, in your life of, of past sin. What about fear? What are you afraid of? You're redeemed. You have clear marching orders. Become more godly. Is fear standing in the way of your personal or spiritual growth? Is it standing in the way of your service to God? 
Is it standing in the way of a life that glorifies God? If it is, call it like it is and repent of it. Confess it and repent it. Repent of it and ask for forgiveness. Habits. How about sin habits that have been especially difficult for you to pray? Maybe you endeavor each time as you confess sin each Sunday as we meet. Confess sin and ask for God to bless you. Maybe there have been some that have been very difficult to to break. Search the scriptures. Pray. Ask others to help you. Bring others into your confidence so that they can be in prayer for you and they can offer a helping hand when that helping hand is needed. Focus. Is your current focus, is your day-to-day focus primarily on what others think of you or what God thinks of you? Because we could be functionally atheists wanting to be popular in in the minds and hearts of the people with whom we work, we know our friends, but you know what? In our world, we can be distracted by that, by an outsourced, outsized focus on those things around us rather than having our focus be on God. And fifth today, what about action? What about your day-to-day life are you, would you find yourself coasting? Are you coasting through life instead of actively thriving to serve God and to honor him by all that you do and all that you say? Is your, is your life just sitting on a raft going with the current? Or are you actively working for God with the breath that he gives you? So as each of us are in Christ, we're Eustace, that is righteous, justified by the Almighty God based on the completed work of Christ on the cross. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for by the righteousness of Christ. We now have an obligation to put to death the deeds of the body, our thoughts, words, and deeds that make us peccator, a sinner. Although we will sin after coming to faith, we will never reach sinless perfection in this life but with the power of the indwelling spirit and following the pattern of confession, repentance, and forgiveness, we can progressively grow spiritually in a way that honors God. This is progressive sanctification, and it is the pattern for everyone who has come to faith. So let's rejoice this morning that those who are in Christ have been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And as a closing thought, if you're not confident in your eustace, in your righteousness before God, or if you're not becoming less of a peccator, less of a sinner, reach out to someone you trust spiritually and ask for help. Is that a pastor, an elder, a friend, a parent, a family member? Reach out to someone for a bit of help in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for blessing the church with the life and legacy of Martin Luther. We thank you for the clear and powerful teaching of Romans 8. We pray that we would seek to love you more, to know you more completely, and live a life worthy of the gospel as we go into the world to make disciples. 
we praise you for so great a salvation and for so great a Savior. And we sing as he taught us. morning we'll be reading from Romans 7 the first verses 4 through 6 so my brothers you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God for while we were in the flesh the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were constrained, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. This ends the reading of God's word. The great joy that we experience at this table is a reality of our new condition. No longer slaves to our sinful passions, but freed from the law and joined to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Through his body, we died to the law. And through our union with him, we have been raised to new life so that we can bear fruit to God. As it is written in John, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let us rejoice this morning that we have been joined with Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, that in newness of life, we may serve our Heavenly Father, bearing the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.